You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the United States Institute of Peace. We are delighted that you could join us today for our discussion about China's military modernization and Beijing's intentions vis-a-vis Taiwan. My name is Jennifer Statz, and I'm the director for East Asia and Pacific programs here at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and it's my honor to be moderating today's session. For those of you who don't know us, the U.S. Institute of Peace was founded by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a national nonpartisan public institution focused on preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict around the world. Not surprisingly, much of our work today focuses on how we can avert crisis and promote peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. That's largely because, as you know, in today's world of increasing strategic competition between the United States and China, Taiwan stands out as the issue with the greatest potential to trigger a violent conflict in the Indo-Pacific. The stakes are high, not only for the United States and China, but most importantly, for the 23 million people who call Taiwan home. If you've been following the news lately, you may have come to the conclusion that prospects for peace in the Taiwan Strait appear bleak. PRC provocations around Taiwan have increased considerably in recent months. The most notable example being large-scale military exercises undertaken by the PLA in response to then Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August of last year. Meanwhile, as China continues to advance its decades-long military modernization process, many are becoming increasingly concerned that the PLA will use its new capabilities to compel Taiwan to accept unification. In light of all of these developments, the National Defense University's new edited volume titled Crossing the Strait, China's Military Prepares for War with Taiwan, explores the political and military context of cross-strait relations today. Its authors focus on understanding the Chinese decision calculus related to the use of military force, the capabilities that China's military would potentially bring to the fight, and what Taiwan can do to defend itself. It is a timely addition to the conversation around one of today's most pressing peace and security issues. Today, we are privileged to have four of the volume's authors with us to explore their findings. Andrew Scobell, Phil Saunders, Joel Withnow, and Alexander Huang. We're going to start off with opening questions for each of them, and then we'll leave plenty of time at the end for questions and answers, including questions from the audience. If you're watching this on the USIP website, there is a chat box on the website page, and you can enter your questions there. If you're watching us on YouTube, you'll need to go to the USIP page to type in your questions. So with that, let's dive in. Our first speaker will be Dr. Andrew Scobell. Dr. Scobell is a distinguished fellow for China at the United States Institute of Peace. Previously, he was a senior political scientist at RAND. He has published a number of books and monographs on the PLA, China's grand strategy, and civil-military relations in China. He was born in Hong Kong and earned a PhD in political science from Columbia University. So Andrew, thank you for getting us started off and for organizing today's event. Um, We'll pass the first question to you, which is this, um, an easy one to get us started. Is China preparing for war with Taiwan? Thanks, Jennifer. Um, Yeah, the... uh... I guess the the answer, the short answer is yes, but um, so for uh, there has been uh, a a long-term goal of the Chinese Communist Party 
is to achieve unification uh, with 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 Taiwan. Um, but this uh, and this hasn't uh, precluded the, the use of force. Um, but this this goal uh, to have the potent capability uh, to uh, capture Taiwan uh, is more of a medium to long term one rather than uh, a short uh, a short term a short uh, timeline. So uh, the good news is, if, there, if you can call it good news, is there's no discernible sense of, of urgency. Um, uh, but on the other hand, there's plenty to be worried about. I'll make four, four quick points. Uh, first, uh, Taiwan's always been a, a high priority of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, realizing uh, unification. Uh, it's become even more prominent under, under Xi Jinping, and now there is an explicit link made between achieving national rejuvenation and realizing unification uh, with with Taiwan. And uh, Taiwan has always uh, uh, been, or for many decades, has been identified as a core interest uh, for for China. And of course, what does core interest mean? It means what's what, what's worth fighting for, uh, and. Uh, this uh, this has uh, Taiwan's uh, a category, the highest category in that core interest. In, in fact, China's foreign minister, uh, I'm sorry, defense minister, last November in a face-to-face -face, uh, uh, with uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said explicitly that Taiwan is the core of the core. Um, so uh, I, I think that just accentuates uh, that uh, Taiwan is, is extremely important um, for, for Beijing. Uh, secondly, uh, the PLA continues uh, to uh, build up its capabilities and uh, uh, to uh, for uh, th that are useful in a Taiwan a Taiwan scenario. It stepped up exercises and trainings. Uh, with a clear focus of uh, uh, a, a preparing for a military operation against Taiwan. Uh, third, thirdly, uh, what we've seen, as, as you alluded to in your in introductory remarks, we've seen elevated uh, tensions, um, extreme uh, gray zone activities, uh, uh, more and more uh, it's become routine uh, for PLA forces to violate the median line in, in the Taiwan Strait. You mentioned uh, the uh, uh, the tensions around the Pelosi Pelosi visit. That was the most sizable show of force in the Taiwan Strait uh, since uh, uh, since the mid 1990s, and that was the third so-called third Taiwan Strait crisis. So many people refer to uh, what happened last August as the fourth uh, Taiwan Strait crisis. Fourthly, um, you know, since the 1980s. Uh, the uh, strategy or policy uh, from Beijing vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Taiwan has been peaceful unification. Um, that said, Beijing has never renounced the use of force. But I think it's worth asking, what does peaceful mean? Uh, it may not mean what the U.S. Institutes of Peace uh, thinks it means, or anyone, <clears throat> anyone in Taiwan uh, thinks it means or anyone listening to this uh, th thinks it means. From um, Beijing's perspective, peaceful, um, it, it's worth think what that means. It's worth looking at uh, uh, some uh, how they've used that term 
and an analogy um, that's been used in in recent uh, in recent years, and that is um, the peaceful uh, the peaceful um, surrender or the peaceful surrender of uh, Beijing, which was then called Beiping, uh, in the um, Chinese Civil War. So, and and this has been a, a explicit analogy made um, by by authoritative commentators in 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 China. So they talk about the peaceful uh, res you know, made the explicit parallel between peaceful resolution of of the Taiwan of of, of unification and the surrender of 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 Beiping. So what's important to keep in mind is that the surrender of Beiping was, uh, uh, yes, it was peaceful, but it was uh, the result of extreme coercion. And the, uh, the, that probably wouldn't have happened uh, without uh, the, the bloody uh, seizure of Tianjin. Um, so this is actually called the uh, Pingjin uh, campaign. So there's, there's seen as one campaign, Be Beijing and, and Tianjin are, are quite close together. And so the, uh, you know, the bloody seizure of uh, capture of, of Tianjin uh, signaled to the nearby uh, nationalist garrison in, in Beiping Be that, uh, you know, if you don't surrender, you're going to suffer you know, thousands of casualties, uh, thousands of, of deaths, and tens of thousands of, of injuries. And uh, the alternative is surrender. And that's indeed uh, what, uh, what, what, what happened. So this is how, Be uh, this is how Beijing in, in 2023 understands peaceful. Uh, so that's, that's a rather ominous um, thought. Uh, so to wrap up, really, in a sense, we tend to think of uh, war dichotomous uh, dichotomy between war and peace, you know? and and I think what uh, what's worth bearing in mind is that uh, in the mind of Xi Jinping and other um, Politburo Standing Committee members, um, th this there is a continuum between war and peace, and so. Uh, we shouldn't, while we should be concerned about a major military operation, uh, aka the invasion of, of Taiwan, uh, this we shouldn't ignore gray zone activities because that's the way. Um, that's uh, that's another way uh, for uh, Beijing uh, to achieve so-called peaceful unification. Thanks. I'll stop there. Great. Thank you very much for getting us off to a strong start and uh, plenty of ideas to think about and talk about as the session goes on. Um, our next speaker will be Dr. Philip Saunders. Uh, Dr. Saunders is the director of the Center for for the study of Chinese military affairs and a distinguished research fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at National Defense University. He previously worked at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, where he directed the East Asian Nonproliferation Program. And from 1989 to 1994, he served as an officer in the Air Force. Dr. Saunders is the co-author with David Gompert of The Paradox of Power, Sino-American Strategic Restraint in an Area of Vulnerability, and the editor of eight books on Chinese military and security issues. He attended Harvard College and received his MPA and PhD in international relations from Princeton University. 
Phil, thank you so much for joining us today and for all of your work on this volume. Um, following up on Andrew's excellent remarks, can you tell us a little bit more about how and why China might launch a war against Taiwan? Thanks. Sure. Let me pick up where he stopped. Uh, I, I think China's preference for peaceful unification is real because that avoids the high costs and risks of trying to resolve this issue with force. But I agree with him, uh, peaceful for the PRC mind doesn't mean that military force won't be used in coercive ways to get there. Uh, and in my chapter of the book, I talk about uh, PRC policy toward Taiwan and make the argument that they've mixed and matched three different tools. Persuasion, why Taiwan ought to be, want to be part of a unified China, united front tactics, and, uh, and leverage. And the problem they've had is persuasion is less and less effective as the PRC becomes more authoritarian, as people in Taiwan look at what's happened in Xinjiang, and especially as they look at what's happened in Hong Kong. And they think if we do a deal with Beijing, they're not going to live up to their side of the bargain. So persuasion's less effective. United Front is good for opposing Taiwan independence, but it's a lot less good for encouraging unification. And the result has been an increased PRC reliance on leverage and coercion, that set of tools in dealing with Taiwan. So what might cause Beijing to use force? I can think of a couple different things, and I'll walk through them. Uh, one of them are formal conditions. If Taiwan declares du jure independence, if the U.S. reestablishes official relations or military alliance with Taiwan, those are conditions that Beijing has said would justify the use of force. Uh, a second set of things involves chaos or instability on Taiwan or a decision by Taiwan to pursue nuclear weapons. Again, these are conditions Beijing has said formally would uh, justify the use of force. And precisely for that reason, people on Taiwan and Taiwan leaders are not stupid. They're not going to try to do those things that might trigger a war. Then we get into more subtle things. Uh, what if PRC leader, leaders decide that peaceful unification is impossible and that the time has finally come to unify? I think to date, they've been very careful not to set a hard deadline and to box themselves into it, because a deadline turns into an ultimatum, and then you face a decision, do I go even if I'm not ready, or do I back down from a deadline and look weak? So they've been careful not to do that. Uh, even the much vaunted date of 2027 is a capability goal, that the PLA wants the capability to be in a, able to invade Taiwan by them. There's two other things that are mentioned uh, that I don't think are very likely, but I'm going to mention them here for uh, completeness. One is domestic pressure in China or the idea of a diversionary war. If there's problems on the PRC side, might they start a war with uh, over Taiwan to divert attention? I think these are both unlikely. The PRC leaders have a lot of ability to control the propaganda apparatus, to suppress protests. And they can switch to the goal of deterring independence, which is easy to do, and away from the goal of achieving unification, which is harder to do. So I don't think they're likely to be pressured into a war they don't want. And then the other scenario talked about sometimes is a small military incident that escalates into a broader war, an airplane collision, uh, ships crashing into each other, or uh, a little bit of a fire incident that escalates. Uh, it's interesting that people in Taiwan and the PRC both see that as really unlikely. 
Uh, they think you don't get escalation into war unless one side or the other wants it to happen. And I tend to agree with that. So I'll, I'll close with the final point. What does worry me? What worries me is that Taiwan takes a step toward independence that they think is just another little tiny salami slice, and Beijing says, whoa, you've gone over the red line. Or in the case of the United States, we do a little bit more in our official, to make our relationship with Taiwan more official or a little more on the military side. We see it as an incremental, modest step, uh, and Beijing decides that's a step over the red line. It's not tolerable. We have to use force to uh, to resolve this. So that potential for misperception, where the U.S. and Taiwan think we're doing something incremental that's not qualitatively different, and Beijing decides that is a step over the red line. We have to use force. Uh, we can't allow this to stand. And the biggest worry is Beijing might redefine what its red lines are, something that was okay last week, this week is intolerable. We wouldn't have a lot of visibility into that. So let me close there. Wonderful. Thank you. A lot more terrific food for thought. So look forward to, to diving into some of this in the discussion period. Um, but we'll turn now to our third speaker, Dr. Joel Withnow. Uh, Dr. Withnow is Senior Research Fellow in the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs in the Institute for National Strategic Studies at National Defense University. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Georgetown. And Dr. Withnow has worked as a CNA analyst, or sorry, as a China analyst at CNA, a postdoctoral fellow in the China and the World Program at Princeton University and a pre-doctoral fellow at the Brookings Institution. He holds degrees from Princeton and Oxford and received his PhD from Columbia University. So Joel, our, our first two speakers have really laid an excellent foundation of how China is thinking about a potential war. Can you tell us a little more about what a war might actually look like? Thanks. Uh, sure. Thanks so much, uh, Jennifer. Thanks to USIP for hosting this and also for co-organizing co the annual PLA conference that this research um, flows out from. Um, so this is a big and complicated question. I'm going to kind of focus on some of the insights from the volume, looking mostly at how we think the PLA um, is preparing to fight a future conflict with uh, Taiwan. Um, so the first point I would make here is that even though uh, Department of Defense has recently started talking about Taiwan as sort of the pacing uh, scenario, I think it's fair to say that for the PLA, this has been their pacing scenario since 1993, um, when they fundamentally overhauled their military strategy, started orienting towards Taiwan, and have been building up certain capabilities to, to do these sorts of things. And so this is not new for them. It's, it's really something they've been uh, fundamentally focused on. Um, so they've given a lot of thought to different cross-strait operations. Um, in a nutshell, I think what we found, find is that they've been talking mostly about three different distinct campaigns uh, relevant for Taiwan. Um, so a fire strike campaign, so that's really a missile bombardment campaign, a blockade campaign, and then finally, of course, the island landing campaign that gets all the attention in the war games. Um, so in the volume, Michael uh, Casey does a pretty good job in sketching each of these campaigns based um, on a lot of PLA writings from the last 20 years, although it's worth, worth noting, I think, that as of two and a half years ago, the PLA started to revise its joint doctrine. Um, and so the wars they might fight in the future along these lines may not look exactly uh, like they would have 10 or 15 years ago. 
Um, so I think we could potentially see the first two of these campaigns being conducted alone um, to put huge pressure um, on the Taiwan government. So either a bombardment of sorts or a blockade um, of the main island or of an offshore island. The alternative is really to kind of to do it all at once um, with as little advance notice uh, as possible given to Taiwan and the United States. So maybe not quite as surprising as Pearl Harbor 1941, but something um, as close as possible to that. What we don't see is a distinct um, counter-intervention campaign, but the PLA is candid that in all of these approaches, um, the U.S. probably will intervene, and so the PLA will have to take steps to uh, delay or to frustrate or to defeat intervening U.S. forces, uh, mostly through long-range strike, and they have a lot of different ways they can do that, uh, but also through non-kinetic means against uh, U.S. systems and capabilities. Um, so I think one of the strengths of this volume is that we go into a pretty great amount of detail on the specific uh, means that the PLA is going to have to solve the logistics challenges of any cross-strait campaign. So how are they actually going to get troops and equipment across 100 miles of water, which is truly a logistical nightmare, uh, worse than the Russians have faced in Ukraine, of course, because Taiwan is an island. Um, so we learned in this book about the organizational reforms to the amphibious forces, uh, which have been fairly significant over the last decade. Uh, we learn about some of the new concepts they're pursuing in terms of using uh, civilian assets and even artificial harbors to facilitate landings when they don't have a port. Um, and we learn about the Airborne Corps, which has also been reorganized in the PLA, but is sometimes sort of lost from these discussions. One of my favorite chapters, I would say, is by one of our Taiwan colleagues, uh, Cheng Chie, who plums through a lot of PLA sources to describe really the mammoth logistics and mobilization requirements for any operation um, across uh, the Taiwan Strait. Um, and this isn't to say that they have sort of given up and said, well, let's, it's impossible. It's an impetus for reform. And so they've done quite a lot of changes uh, to their logistics and mobilization systems, and I think more are being planned. Um, a lot of the discussion also in the book is about how the PLA is trying to become more joint. Um, and it's going to have to be because all of these campaigns uh, require a very high degree of coordination between the different services and branches. Uh, but historically, this hasn't been the strength of the PLA. Uh, and of course, we've seen from the Russian case in Ukraine that uh, jointness in practice can be very, very difficult um, in real world uh, circumstances. Uh, so in my own chapter in the volume, I talk about improvements to the PLA's command structure. Uh, so the Eastern Theater Command is really quite a lot more joint than its predecessor uh, in the Nanjing military region, um, but also about some of the ways in which there are still bottlenecks uh, in the system. I mean, what that could mean for defensive operations against the PLA. Uh, so to kind of wrap up, I think, you know, the PLA has been working this problem for decades, but they're still sort of in a, in a place of transition. Um, I don't think there's a lot of question anymore about their ability to pull off or to sustain um, the fire strike campaign or a blockade. Um, assuming that the U.S. doesn't intervene. Um, but a full-scale amphibious invasion, I think, remains very difficult uh, for the PLA, uh, and they're working on the specific challenges they're going to need um, to, to, to deal with uh, to be able to pull this off at some point. 
Um, so this isn't a call for complacency, um, but I think it does suggest that there still is sort of a window. Um, and this is distinct from the so-called 2027 Davidson window that Phil referenced earlier. Um, but I do think there's a window now for Taiwan um, assisted or helped by the United States and some of our core allies in the region to get even more serious about Taiwan's defenses and the equipment and the training that they're going to need to pose um, a significant danger to anything the PLA tries to get across the Taiwan Strait. Um, so let me wrap up there and turn it back over to you. Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll now turn to our fourth speaker for the morning uh, before we open up for, for discussion. Um, and that's Dr. Alexander Huang. And Dr. Huang is a professor at the Institute of Strategic Studies at Tom Kong University and founder and chairman of the Council on Strategic and Wargaming Studies in Taiwan. He previously served in the Taiwan government as Deputy Minister of the Mainland Affairs Council, and he's worked closely with consecutive governments on foreign and security policy matters. Dr. Huang did his graduate work at Georgetown University and at George Washington University, where he received his doctoral degree. Dr. Huang, thank you so much for joining us, as we know how important it is to make sure that voices from Taiwan are included as part of this conversation. So my question for you is, how is Taiwan preparing for the possibility of an attack from China? Thanks. Well, um, this has been a, a issue or a question uh, that Taiwan has been dealt with uh, for over 70 years. Um, thank you uh, for the uh, uh, United States Institute of Peace and uh, NDU uh, that hosting this uh, virtual uh, conference. Um, and uh, I have several points to address the issue. Um, the People's Republic of China or the People's Liberation Army uh, has not engaged in a real war fighting. Uh, since 1979. And uh, the Taiwan military has not been engaged in a war since uh, 1958. So, so for China, 43 years uh, of no war experience and Taiwan military with 64 years without, uh, you know, uh, actual combat and war experience. Uh, the two sides are actually uh, not in the major league uh, in terms of uh, international military conflict. Sometimes I joke that, uh, that now the world is focusing on a possible kinetic uh, military conflict uh, between two amateurs. Um, and that, you know, lay out a even more dangerous situation in the world. No, we had at the conference that 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 finally produced the book, Crossing the Strait. Um, uh, before uh, the Economist magazine uh, identified Taiwan as the most dangerous place on Earth, and before the uh, uh, People's Liberation Army's drill in August 2022, immediately after. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, uh, to Taiwan. And, um, you know, as time passed, uh, this is a great time for us to review and, and uh, reassess 
then the probability of a uh, military conflict across the Taiwan Strait in the immediate future um, and uh, whether Taiwan is sustainable. Um, in that book, uh, you know, Drew Thompson and I uh, are in a specific category that we talk about the defense of Taiwan, while other authors were talking about China's preparation for a military attack on Taiwan. So we focused on our discussion on, you know, uh, how Taiwan uh, could defend itself. You know, I have to say uh, that, um, you know, it has been uh, a long debate uh, uh, between uh, the United States and Taiwan and uh, professionals within Taiwan on to on the issue of how effectively that we can defend Taiwan, you know, given the uh, new development of the People's Liberation Army. Um, one thing that uh, we focused uh, when we uh, had the conference and when we revised the paper for publication was on a concept called overall defense concept, ODC. Uh, and uh, through the uh, experience in the past two years, we realized that it is more crucial now for Taiwan to think seriously about a a real possibility of the Chinese use of force against Taiwan. And um, Taiwan had experienced, especially in 2022, with two wake-up calls. One is the uh, Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And the second one uh, was the uh, uh, August 2022 uh, military exercise that encircling Taiwan. And that two scenarios uh, uh, or two big events that actually reflected that, you know, the topics of our chapters and the issues that we address during our conference and, and, and continue to, uh, you know, guide us to look into the, how Taiwan can defend itself. Uh, the major uh, topics that people are looking at is uh, whether Taiwan has and or will, uh, you know, adopt a, a, a full version uh, or full capacity that following a concept of a fortress Taiwan or porcupine strategy that uh, invest uh, our modernization and military uh, you know, uh, you know, programs that focusing on the sustainability of Taiwan. Um, that if China attacks, that that how Taiwan can defend itself individually, or long enough until the international uh, inference or support coming in politically, diplomatically, uh, militarily, um, in all holistic. Uh, perspective that can change the posture or change the situation uh, surrounding Taiwan. In our discussion, uh, both in the conference and the following uh, years, uh, that uh, that looking at the same issue, uh, we still focused on uh, you know the deficiencies of a fortress Taiwan or 
uh, porcupine strategy because um, there are issues like, uh, you know, energy, uh, maritime energy uh, supply lines um, that could not be uh, fully addressed by the, uh, you know, porcupine strategy, how Taiwan could deal with the uh, gray zone tactics through, uh, uh, you know, traditional, uh, you know, weapon systems and how Taiwan uh, should um, uh, utilize its uh, new, newly adopted uh, or introduced asymmetrical warfare concept to reframe the Taiwan's defense strategy. Right now, we have other uh, issues. For instance, uh, the backlog, uh, you know, delivery of weapon systems that Taiwan has procured from the United States uh, due to the COVID and other, you know, uh, production uh, problems. And also, uh, we are also looking at um, the problems of Taiwan's, uh, you know, mobilization of reserve forces and how, what kind of training that they could receive and whether Taiwan can uh, extend its um, compulsory military service. All these issues uh, uh, have uh, been dealt with, but in a slow motion picture uh, sense. Um, so I would conclude by saying that um, there are good recommendations. Uh, uh, there are new awareness about the situation, um, but given the potential of a kinetic military conflict, Taiwan still need a lot of time um, to uh, reform and prepare. And uh, before uh, Taiwan can reach that point, um, or a point of relative, uh, you know, uh, confident uh, to deal with a, a Chinese invasion alone. Um, you know, probably we need uh, to focus also on diplomatic and other uh, preventive diplomat uh, diplomatic measures uh, to help Taiwan buy time so uh, the Taiwan military can reform itself and uh, connect it better and train better uh, with the assistance from the United States and other, you know, liberal democratic countries. Uh, so um, I believe this is an important subject and the issue will be with us for years to come. And I thanks for the opportunity for me to contribute a chapter, and I'm willing to continue to engage in discussion with all parties. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Huang, and thank you to all of our speakers this morning for some really terrific introductory remarks. You've raised a number of really important and interesting issues, and uh, we're already getting some terrific questions in the chat, which we'll be exploring over the next half hour or so. So, again, to those of us who are who are for, to those of you who are watching online, if you have a question that you'd like to pose to our panelists, uh, please enter it into the chat box on the USIP website, and uh, we will be collecting those and trying to get in as many 
many as we can before the event ends. So thanks. Um, to start things off, I'd like to ask a question that has been uh, on the mind of many here in Washington and really around the world uh, over the last year or so, which is really trying to uh, look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine and try to understand what lessons Beijing might be learning from uh, what it has seen transpire there. Uh, so I know this is a, a very uh, popular question and a popular issue, uh, very hard to, to really understand exactly what's going on. Uh, but fortunately, we have some panelists who've done a lot of thinking about this topic. Uh, so I want to turn first to Joel to see if he could shed some light on the lessons that Beijing may be drawing from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Uh, sure. Um, so I think I would kind of make three three points on this question. Um, first of all, you know, China cannot help but to have realized that there was a very high level of alliance coordination in terms of uh, sanctions and even in terms of some of the training and assistance that have been provided to Ukraine. Um, and so this probably did lead Beijing to some degree to revise its assessments on the willingness, the ability of U.S. allies to even pay a price in their relations with China if there ever were to be a war. And so I think what that has done has probably been to trigger more thinking at a higher level on the ways in which China it can inoculate itself or to reduce uh, the costs um, of sanctions of any conflicts. And so that's both on the financial side, but also on um, access to critical resources that China wouldn't want to have uh, shut off for it in a conflict. And so I think there has been greater attention to this. Uh, the second is really on the military lessons uh, for the PLA. Um, what we don't have right now is sort of the authoritative uh, readout or dissection of Russia's military ineffectiveness. Um, this is a touchy subject uh, for China. It's something that they don't necessarily want to humiliate their Russian colleagues that they're trying to show solidarity with right now. Um, what you do see, however, are a lot of portraits of individual uh, systems, weapons, and equipment. Uh, some of this was reported in Reuters just a couple days ago, very good uh, article. But um, they're looking at all dimensions of this, both the kinetic system things like HIMARS that were very effective, but also things like Starlink, uh, which proved to be very effective for uh, Ukraine. Um, and I think trying to puzzle through what that would mean for a Taiwan contingency, uh, not only in terms of Taiwan's access to that and avoiding an information blackout by China, but also U.S. use of those kinds of systems to preserve uh, access to the Western Pacific. And then the final thing would be in terms of kind of strategic deterrence. Um, I think from China's perspective, one of the things that went right uh, for the Russians was able to um, coerce the West not to really militarily intervene in terms of boots on the ground, uh, mainly through nuclear signaling at the start of the conflict. Um, and so China has a similar idea of strategic deterrence as the Russians have. Uh, and so I think from their point of view, what this does is to make them more confident or even overconfident that they in some way could actually deter or diminish U.S. and uh, Western intervention by means of their um, signaling through their um, more um, larger and more advanced nuclear um, and strategic capabilities. And so I worry that that would actually give them overconfidence in being able to deter U.S. intervention and what that would mean for sort of crisis stability in a future conflict with two nuclear armed uh, countries. Uh, so I'll stop there. Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, very helpful in, in trying to understand this complicated issue. Uh, I think we'll turn next to Andrew Scobell to weigh in on the same question. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, you know, one, one, one quick uh, observation that following from uh, Joel's uh, excellent uh, analysis. You know, Beijing and, and the PLA may not be learning the lessons from Ukraine that we hope they're learning um, or we think they might be learning. And uh, so it, 
it is, I think they do, as Joel said, probably have uh, some over, overconfidence. Uh, that said, as, as I think Phil, Phil emphasized, you know, it, it is a risky you know, launching a, uh, a major military uh, operation against, uh, against Taiwan uh, is, is risky. And it's riskier uh, than than Ukraine. Um, so this is uh, we, we can't see inside Xi Jinping's mind, uh, but but uh, but but in some ways that that's what it that that's what it comes down to, um, because he is China's commander in chief and he is so powerful. It really is it really is his decision. Um, but in my chapter. I try and apply prospect theory uh, to, to thinking about Beijing's calculus uh, about uh, using to use to use or not to use force against Taiwan. And so, uh, w- what's important is is does uh, Beijing see itself uh, in the domain of gains or in the domain of losses? Um, so, if in other words, uh, if if things are going well. If uh, in terms of uh, managing the Taiwan issue, uh, in terms of China's economy and and and, and so on, uh, is the outlook looking look, looking positive? Are things going in in, in Xi Jinping and the Communist Party's uh, general uh, uh, direction? Then then the, in that in that in that uh, atmosphere in that climate. Uh, Beijing is less, less, much less inclined uh, to be uh, uh, to, to launch a risky operation against Taiwan. However, if things shift uh, to uh, a much more negative uh, scenario, a negative um, atmosphere, um, you know, things things aren't looking good uh, economically, uh, and uh, from Beijing's perspective. Uh, Taiwan seems to be moving in away from unification, uh, as Phil Phil talked about. Uh, then that that changes the calculus in Beijing, and you, you see, you'll see a more uh, uh, willingness uh, to accept risk. So the, the problem is, as I mentioned at the outset, is to to, to answer the question of you know, are, does Beijing see itself in the domain of losses uh, or the uh, domain of gains? We have to see inside Xi Jinping's brain. Uh, so, so that's uh, that's uh, the good news is if or, or it's clearer, it would be much clearer if Beijing is preparing for actually preparing militarily uh, for an operation against against Taiwan. We would we would have indicators and warnings of that. Um, but thinking in looking into the calculus of Chinese uh, Chinese Communist Party leadership, uh, that's that's a much more um, uh, gray zone or, or, or ambiguous endeavor. Great. Thank you. Well, speaking of gray zones, I guess we'll go there next and um, we'll ask the question. There's a lot of conversation about gray zone operations and uh, what that means for Taiwan as well as the rest of the region. So I guess just to start off, um, Dr. Huang, perhaps, can, can you tell us a little bit about just what gray zone operations are and how should we think about gray zone operations in the context of Taiwan? Thanks. Well, I, I think that uh, that in, within the professional community that we all know that the gray zone uh, term actually uh, 
it's not a new one uh, because uh, it has been there uh, in different forms uh, in the uh, oper military operations uh, or the tactics that have been used through uh, military means uh, in the past. Um, for Taiwan, it falls into two categories. Number one is uh, something about inference campaign, cyber attack, um, and and other you know non-traditional measures that would psychologically or in terms of propaganda that uh, try to uh, uh, change the perspective or crush uh, the will uh, of Taiwan's defense. Uh, that's category one, and category two is uh, by employment of um, military force without attacking Taiwan, um, but performing uh, the uh, actions. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, a what we call, you know, usually call partial blockade or targeted coercive uh, quarantine of uh, maritime shipping, uh, especially on energy ships uh, to Taiwan. Uh, everybody knows that um, you know during the uh, the uh, military drills uh, in August 2022 that encircling Taiwan, when China announced its military drill, it stated in the very beginning that it will last for only 72 hours, uh, covering seven zones that surrounding Taiwan, um, and um, that was only three days. Uh, but we all understood in Taiwan that if uh, the length of the military drill is was not three days, but three weeks, and that will significantly disrupt the energy shipping to Taiwan of, uh, from the Middle East through South China Sea and get into Taiwan. If we apply for the uh, overall defense concept or or 100% asymmetric, you know, a porcupine type of uh, military investment and, and modernization or build up. Uh, Taiwan would not have the ability to deal with, uh, a, you know, the second category of military pressure and squeezing Taiwan's uh, defense capability. Let me give you one uh, example that when China stepped up its uh, uh, naval and air uh, coercion or, or pressure uh, over Taiwan's air defense identification zone as a new normal, uh, Taiwan's uh, uh, air defense assets had been, uh, especially the Air Force um, you know, fighter jets, uh, are wearing out uh, much faster uh, than our uh, original investment and procurement assessment. Um, in other words, that the parts and, and the critical equipment uh, on board uh, our uh, Air Force fighter jets uh, would have much less interval of uh, maintenance and, and, uh, and, and uh, logistics support. You know, with the back ordered uh, and other restrictions by the uh, defense procurement contracts, uh, 
and, and Taiwan's um, air defense capability is wearing out pretty fast, those kind of uh, gray zone area would uh, not involve in a direct kinetic military invasion or amphibious landing against Taiwan, but will be able to significantly weaken Taiwan's defense capability. Another is that the energy, you know, uh, Taiwan had talked about social endurance for years, um, but uh, if our LNG ships and the oil tankers would be stopped, or quarantined by the Chinese Navy, Coast Guard, or maritime militia for whatever reasons. Um, and that would create a lot of problems for the psychological impact on the general public in Taiwan. And that's the part that Taiwan military may not be uh, helpful uh, for the entire, the overall defense uh, of Taiwan. So these are the issues that we see uh, a gray zone challenges uh, are mounting and and uh, is real and uh, and uh, we need uh, external help to 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 uh, to assist Taiwan to address all these issues. Great, thank you very much. That was incredibly helpful. This is obviously an important issue. Uh, there's a lot to say about it. So we've got a few other folks uh, to chime in on this question. Um, we'll turn first to uh, Phil Saunders. Just a couple brief points. First, there's a great chapter in the book by Matthew Duchatel from the Institut Montaigne in France, uh, which goes into this in some detail if you wanna read more. I think of gray zone as the use of military pressure while staying below the threshold of lethal force and sometimes substituting paramilitary forces for military forces. And that's certainly something that the PRC and the PLA have ramped up against Taiwan uh, since President Tsai took office, but also especially since the Pelosi visit. Uh, one issue there is, yes, military pressure can impose costs, but if it's not using lethal force, can it really force Taiwan to capitulate on the fundamental political issues uh, at stake in this in this conflict? Um, and, and I think that's a that's an open question because it's not, in my view, probably enough pressure to force them to give ground on the main issue. And then as you start increasing, you move toward the threshold of lethal force. Some of the things being talked about are akin to a blockade, which is an act of war. Even if uh, the PLA tries to force Taiwan or other or other forces to take the first shot, so it's certainly something that uh, China is doing. It's it is applying pressure. It is a challenge for Taiwan, but I don't think it gets Ta uh, gets the the PRC all the way toward Taiwan conceding the main point and agreeing to unification. Let me stop there. Great, thanks. Um, Joel, over to you. So just a couple a couple quick points on the gray zone issue. Um, you know, first of all, this is a bit, bit similar to what Phil was mentioning there at the end, but it's really the question, now we're sort of in a new normal of heightened military activity, both you know, air, maritime, you name it. But if it's not lethal, is it discounted as hollow symbolism? In other words, if they're doing more of this, um, does it become sort of like the mid-1950s when China was you know, on again, off again, shelling the offshore islands for show, but it wasn't really crossing any 
particular boundaries, and therefore the signaling is much less effective. Um, and so will that lead them to a more dangerous place as they realize it's not having the effect that they anticipated? Um, and the other thing is, if they're going to do much larger exercises around Taiwan, and we saw a bit of that in August and September last year, um, but at some point in the future, maybe not this year, are they going to get to the point where they're really starting to, to come close to the actual parameters of a real invasion? And what would that do for our, meaning Taiwan, the U.S., and Western ability to pre correctly predict whether this is actually an exercise or whether it's an invasion? And would that potentially lull us into a rather complacent state? This is, oh, just another exercise, but actually it's a strategic deception. And so those are some of the things that I worry about as they ramp, significantly ramp up and get closer to the scale of real combat operations. Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, I know we are we are getting a lot of great questions. We're also getting short on time. Um, I guess I would ask, uh, you know, thinking about uh, what all this means for the United States, um, what can or should the United States and uh, perhaps also its allies and partners do now to help deter China from deciding that this is the right time to launch an invasion on Taiwan? Uh, what can we do to affect Xi Jinping's decision calculus um, and try to prevent a war? Does anyone want to jump in on that question? Sure, I, I'll, oh, thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll be brave and go first. Um, so first, there's a lot of things on the military side but I think one of the most important ones is to say this is a different case than Ukraine. This is one where the U.S. stakes are higher, both its stakes in um, protecting Taiwan's democracy, but also its stakes in terms of the, of the credibility of our commitments throughout Asia. And like it or not, our allies, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, look to how we handle the Taiwan issue as an indicator of U.S. commitment and staying power and willingness to, to uphold our uh, our commitments. So I think the first point is to make clear to, to China that our stakes are higher here. And a vague nuclear threat like Putin gave with respect to Ukraine uh, isn't enough to keep the U.S. out of a conflict. Uh, I think there's other specific things that I'll leave to my colleagues to mention in terms of military deterrence and efforts to improve Taiwan's capabilities and the U.S. capability to operate uh, close to China within their anti-access area denial uh, envelope. There's a lot of things the U.S. services are doing to build new new operational capabilities, including standoff weapons, including multi-domain task forces that can operate in the cyber and electromagnetic domains. Uh, so there's a lot the U.S. military is doing. But the point I want to make here is it's important that the leaders in Beijing not give up hope that there is a peaceful resolution to this, that there is the possibility of peaceful unification. If they give up hope of that, this turns it into a strictly military competition. I don't think that's good for Taiwan. I don't think it's good for the United States. I don't think it's good for China. So I think part of our policy has to be uh, reinforcing the credibility of our one China policy. And on Taiwan's side, uh, signaling a willingness to talk to the mainland. That doesn't mean concede to them. That doesn't mean surrender to them. Uh, but a willingness to talk to them and give them a chance to try to persuade people on Taiwan that unification would be a good thing. I think that's part of a good deterrence strategy is to have some of those assurances to Beijing 
that Taiwan's not going to declare the independence and the U.S. is not going to create an alliance with Taiwan. And there is still some hope, maybe slim hope, but not no hope of peaceful unification. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Does anybody else want to weigh in on that point? Uh, sure, uh, Jennifer. Just a couple, a couple additional thoughts on this. Um, from a military uh, perspective, um, I think Phil is right that Taiwan is not Ukraine. Although there are probably some lessons, uh, military lessons from Ukraine that can be applied by Taiwan to improve deterrence, including use of and stockpiling of some of the more advanced uh, systems um, that have been helpful for Ukraine in dealing with the Russians. Um, at the operational level, I think what's most useful for the United States is being unpredictable, being surprising, um, having something that, to quote Schelling, leaves something to chance uh, for China because they don't quite know where we're going to show up, in what way, how, and so on, that this would be opening a can of worms for them that they're not really prepared to deal with and can't really simulate in their exercises. Uh, and then finally, we've been talking um, a lot recently about so-called integrated deterrence, and it's been a concept or an idea that's been sometimes batted about and even sort of dismissed as sort of empty rhetoric. But I think it does point to a particular comparative advantage that the United States has over China um, in both respects of, number one, international coordination, especially with some of our closest allies in the region, like Japan, which have moved much more close to actually being involved in this conflict. Um, and then second, in terms of interagency, a coordination um, between the Department of Defense, um, but also other critical players that play a deterrent role, including things like commerce, um, the State Department and Treasury and so on, and being able to do that really cohesively uh, in peacetime to signal that we're sort of, you know, we have a pretty coherent plan all across the government. Um, and that would be very difficult for China to match given their problems with interagency uh, and international coordination. So I'll leave it there. Great, thank you again. Um, we've covered a lot on this topic over the last hour. There is a lot more to say. Uh, certainly more of these, these issues are covered in more detail uh, in the volume, which I hope everyone will, will get a chance to read. Uh, but before we end the event today, I want to go around and give each of our speakers an opportunity to share some final thoughts on this topic uh, before we wrap up. So we'll go in the same order and I'll turn first to Andrew Scobell. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, I want to return uh, to uh, the uh, parallel or uh, analogy uh, of uh, Ukraine um, and make a, make one key uh, key point. Uh, at it, earlier or last year, shortly after the uh, uh, Russia uh, launched its invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, uh, a colleague at USIP and and I wrote a wrote a commentary on the USIP website titled uh, "China is not Russia, Taiwan is not Ukraine," and uh, I think the, the one of the key points uh, we make in in that is uh, in that piece is that um, a, a key difference is that when Putin was uh, Vladimir Putin was making the decision uh, to invade uh, Ukraine he was pretty confident uh, that uh, the US and NATO would not join the fight uh, and and so he, his risk calculus uh, was uh, you know he, he, that 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 was reassuring to him I think and and uh, uh, and, and so he went ahead uh, with the invasion and he, and he was that, that calculus proved right. By contrast, uh, where, uh, where where Xi Jinping's concerned and Taiwan, 
I think he he presumes uh, that any military, uh, if China were to launch a military operation against Taiwan, uh, the U.S. that would necessarily almost certainly involve a conflict with the U.S. So that uh, the U.S. military uh, would come uh, to China's uh, to sorry to Taiwan's uh, uh, side. So uh, that that is. That is a fundamental difference between Ukraine and, and Taiwan and the, and the respective calculuses of the irredentist uh, leaders here. And so we often hear this term strategic ambiguity. And I think it's uh, my I think it's misunderstood. I don't think there's any ambiguity, uh, almost no ambiguity in that the, the U.S. stands with Taiwan, uh, where the ambiguity comes in is when and how. Uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, exercises uh, its military uh, uh, support uh, for Taiwan in in a in a crisis or a conflict scenario. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, we'll go next to Phil Saunders. I'll just hit the top line points. There's a lot Taiwan needs to do to improve its military capabilities, including spending more and in a more focused way. Uh, there are things the U.S. military needs to do to improve our ability to project power through China's anti-access area denial zones. But for me, the other part of this is remembering the reassurance side that Taiwan is not going to declare independence. The U.S. is not going to reestablish an alliance with Taiwan. And there is still hope, maybe slim hope, but, so, but that's not no hope. Uh, of a path to peaceful unification. That's important to keep Beijing from using force. Terrific, thanks. Uh, Joel, over to you. And along those lines, I think, you know, one of the questions is how do you deter without provoking? And I think that's really gonna be a question, not only for a US administration, we're facing our own electoral cycle here, 2024 being another election, uh, but also with respect to Taiwan and their 2024 election. Um, what do you say, what do you do that will convince China that today is not the day to fight, um, but that also is not gonna push them over their red line? And it's a challenge because they have been ambiguous. Um, about what their red lines are. And so how do we know, do we have a feedback mechanism in place to correctly perceive what China is making of what we and what the Taiwanese are doing uh, in this equation? And is this more provoking them? Is it more deterring them? How to know the difference? And where do you kind of um, find the optimal solution? So yeah, that will be the question, I think, for, for all the administrations that are about to come in uh, next year. Wonderful, thanks. And for the final word, uh, Alexander Huang. Yeah, my, I, I think we, we are uh, pretty much in line in, in uh, the overall uh, concept. I, I think, uh, you know, deterrence without provocation, assurances without appeasement uh, are good to say, and, uh, but it's a difficult balance to, to maintain. Uh, what I want to say finally is that if we have uh, more than three dozens of recommendations for Taiwan's defense improvement, modernization, uh, uh, and reform, if we still need several years for the Pacific Defense Initiative to be funded and for the American forces in Asia uh, or in the Indo-Pacific region, to um, uh, get into more uh, newer uh, operational concept and uh, new platforms, we all need to buy time. So, so how to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and buy time for both of 
both the United States and Taiwan uh, to uh, you know improve and 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 better uh, defend uh, our common interests is a crucial area. Lastly, I want to say that uh, that the, this book is come into uh, the market in time, and I believe that uh, it should be read by a much wider community. And uh, we uh, and I myself. Uh, uh, I'm very happy to be part of this effort. Thank you. Terrific. It's a great note to end on. I just want to say thank you to all of our speakers. Uh, this really was a terrific discussion of a hugely important issue. Of course, we were only able to scratch the surface of most of these issues uh, today. So I hope that uh, those of you who are watching, who are interested in learning more about these issues in greater detail, uh, will pick up a copy of the book. Uh, it's called Crossing the Strait, China's Military Prepares for War with Taiwan, uh, published by NDU. Uh, this, again, has been a, a Terrific discussion. Really thanks to all of our speakers and thanks to those of you who are watching us online. And uh, hope to see you again at another USIP event. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.